0: Exodus 17, beginning at verse 8. Once again, this is God's holy word. Take care how you hear it, friends. Then Amalek came, and he fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose for us men, and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought with Amalek, while Aaron, Moses, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed, and whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side. And the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is My Banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us this day. Let's all pray. O Lord God, this is your word, and we need it. You have said, Lord Jesus, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, the mouth of God. So help us now by your Holy Spirit to read and mark and learn and inwardly comprehend and, yes, even treasure all that we read and study this day. Grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry and illumination. Amen. Well, last time, last Lord's Day, as we were studying this passage, you may remember that we argued that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ has always faced two kinds of threats, many, many variety of kinds of threats, of course, but in general, two broad categories of threats or problems, that is, the people of God have always faced two kinds of threats, internal and external threats much like as we thought about the United States of America post 9-11. On some days, the threats that we felt as a nation, they felt more keenly as being from the outside. Terrorist organizations or unstable dictators that were hell-bent on destruction, militant Islam, etc., etc. And for years, many people thought that the most pressing threat to America's existence were forces on the outside, external forces, External threats that wished for our doom. However, as time went on, we began to see that our beloved nation was deeply sick in her moral fiber. There was a sickness, there was a threat from the inside, not merely something on the outside. Our morals and ethics were crumbling, our exploitation of women and children was damning, our rejection of a moral conscience and a desire fundamentally to reject a God to whom we as creatures are accountable, these things were... More and more, we're leading us spiraling downward into moral anarchy, giving us fruits that we are enjoying, such as the sexual revolution, the devaluing of marriage, the dishonoring of the God-ordained family, and more. All of which to say is that there are internal and external threats, both are a reality. You might think, which one threatens our nation more, internal or external? It depends on the day of the week, really, but both are legitimate and true factors. So it is with the church. The people of God. The church has always faced threats to her spiritual welfare from two sources. Sometimes from armies and bloodthirsty kings who hate God and hate his people and want to destroy the church. See Psalm 2, for example. Why are these nations plotting a vain thing and conspiring against the Lord and his Messiah, saying, Let us cast their bonds asunder and tear their bonds asunder? They hate God and hate his Messiah. But sometimes God's people suffer from their own impiety and sin, and their own unrepentant indulgences and practices. You might think of something like the sin of Achan in Joshua chapter 7, for example. Well, last time, last Lord's Day, as we looked at Exodus 17, in the first seven verses, we saw and we examined more of the internal threats. Israel, she's camped at Rephidim, tired, hot, thirsty, no doubt, from their arduous journey, and they came to a place where there was supposed to be refreshing water, there was none. And you remember how they reacted? They grumbled and complained and griped against Moses. They had been, remember, obeying carefully, they've been carefully obeying the commandment of God as they've been making their way through the wilderness, but they seem to have misunderstood their relationship with him. They have a, a bare, remember, a bare raw compliance to God's with God's instructions but they seem to have no trust that he's actually going to keep his promises. They're following the letter of the law. They're keeping, they're ticking those boxes and keeping those rules and regulations, but they don't seem to trust that God's really going to do what he said he shall do. So when trials come and difficulties begin to take place in their lives, their relationship to him begins to fall apart. They turn to grumbling and complaining and putting God to the test. As we saw, quarreling really was invoking of a legal term. Last week, they're putting God to the test, bringing charges against him as if in a court of law. Yet nevertheless, we saw God was merciful and provided water from the rock to quench their thirst. Well, almost immediately, after dealing with their internal sin and the consequences of their own impiety, Israel now faces an external threat, the Amalekites. While the Israelites are taking their rest at the oasis, these semi-nomadic people of the Sinai Peninsula they decide to put a stop to the march of the Hebrews as they're marching their way, traversing their way toward Amalekite territory. And so as we study this passage this morning, we see what happens in the conflict with Amalek. And there's really four simple things I'd like for us to see, four simple verbs, really, that we can use to outline this passage, four simple imperatives even. Flee, copy, trust, and look. Four points. Flee, copy, trust, and look. So first, flee. As we look at this passage, there is a danger or a sin or a temptation that must be fled. There's a sin that must be fled. Look at verse 8 and then down at verse 16. Verse 8, then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Down at verse 16. A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, many commentators note that war is what bookends this passage. On the front end, at the top, at the back end, at the bottom. War with Amalek. It begins with the Amalekites attacking Israel and ends with the Lord himself waging war on the Amalekites. Amalek begins by ambushing Israel when she's vulnerable. And unsuspecting, she's paused there, resting, getting water at the oasis, and the passage ends with a sworn promise that the Lord himself will vanquish and obliterate the people of Amalek. Now, we don't know much about Amalek and his people, other than there was a tribe of people that lived in the north part of the Sinai Peninsula. Perhaps they were ancient ancestors of the modern Arab peoples since Amalek descended from Esau. And furthermore, no explicit reason is given for the severity of God's judgment on Amalek. Now, later on in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 25, that chapter references this event, and it says that Amalek did not fear God, having attacked the people of Israel who were trailing behind and tired from the journey. And so while it's not explicit in this passage, there is a warning here that we can legitimately derive from the text That is, there is a temptation, there is a danger, which if we are wise, we must resist and flee. Quite simply, it is never safe to stand against the people of God. It is never safe to attack the church or threaten her or to scheme for the harm of God's people. It is never safe to stand against the people of God. The Lord Jesus is a bridegroom, and his bride is the church, and he loves her, he has redeemed her, and like any good husband, he will defend her. I love what one commentator says. He said this It's easy in these days of indifference to the claims of the Christian gospel to adopt a stance of urbane superiority and cultured disdain toward the church of Jesus Christ. It's easy to mock her worship, to deride her principles, to disdain her ethics. It's easy to exclude her voice from the public square, easy to marginalize and exclude and vilify and denounce the people of God as backward and regressive and narrow-minded. The church, those Christians, are the enemies of free thought and forward progress, and the world will applaud you and think you oh so terribly wise for adopting such a, an enlightened perspective. Close quote. When I was in high school, I would often get in debates, into debates with a self-declared atheist named Brandon. And at one point, getting to the end of the conversation, casting aside all intellectual arguments, I, I attempted to appeal to the fear of his heart by mentioning judgment and wrath, God's holiness, and hell. Unfazed, absolutely unfazed, he stood there and said, your God is not real, your hell is not real, And I am not afraid of dying and burning in hell, a land which you invented in your mind anyway. It was a chilling moment. I mean, as a 16-year-old, it was absolutely chilling. I could have picked my jaw up from the floor, not afraid of your God and his judgment. Friends, the fact is to stand against the church of God and the cause of God is the most foolish path that a man can take. To oppose his people, his body, his bride, is to stand on the wrong side of Almighty God. Right, you've heard the phrase that's so in vogue and trendy these days. If you oppose the mores of our culture, if you oppose the progress of the sexual revolution, if you oppose the ethics of the moment, which change every 37 seconds, it seems, what are you? You're on the wrong side of history. Well, History is a terrible barometer for what's right or what's good. Lots of things happen in history. I don't care so much about being on the wrong side of history. I care about being on the wrong side of God. The truth is the Lord will fight for his people. Revelation chapter 19, which we read a few moments ago, tells us of Christ coming again. And you saw that graphic description or you read that graphic description and that depiction of him. Christ coming again with a rope dipped in blood, coming to avenge the blood of martyred saints and his suffering people everywhere to exact vengeance against unrepented sin and wickedness, coming with a sword to strike the nations. Indeed, our shorter catechism, number 26, tells us that Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. Oh, my friends, judgment is real. And we get just a just a microcosm, just a smidgen, just a hint of it here, of the faith that awaits all men who stand opposed to God and his people. We get just a hint of that here at the latter half of Exodus 17. Let us not follow the Amalekites' path. As one man said, you need not fear the church, but you are a fool to think that you have nothing to fear from the church's Lord. So that's the first thing. This temptation, this sin, we must flee. That's the first thing. Secondly, Notice there is something that God's people would do well to copy, to copy. First, there's something that we must never do, but then there is something we should do. Here, in the midst of the attack, Moses appoints Joshua. Now, as you know, Joshua will go on to become Moses' right-hand man and eventual successor, the new leader of Israel when Moses dies. Now, here, he is appointed as a kind of military leader. Verse 9 Choose for us men, they say, he says to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Now once again, the Israelites had seen, and we've pointed this out numerous times throughout our study through this wonderful book of Exodus, the Israelites had seen numerous miracles from the Lord's hand already. They'd seen the terrible plagues in Egypt. They'd seen the Red Sea water standing up like a wall as Israel walks on through on dry ground. They'd then seen that same water deluging the wicked Egyptians. And the Israelites are protected and preserved in the midst of that. They'd seen bread raining from the sky. They'd seen water gushing from rocks. You'd think that Israel by now would almost be accustomed to the as if these were things of second nature, almost as if they were old hat. Of course God's going to do a miracle. Of course God's going to do something wondrous. The Lord continues to protect and provide for Israel. Israel would assume, you might think, that God will simply take care of the Amalekites. Apparently, they've got that pillar of cloud and fire nearby. Maybe he'll just unleash that pillar of fire to smite them and wipe them out. But the temptation then would be to think we should not gird ourselves up for battle, we should not get our weapons. God can handle it. God does not need our feeble efforts. Like like brandishing an umbrella at a Category 5 hurricane, what's the point? Surely God will take care of the Amalekites. We should simply stand back and let Him do it. Let go and let God. Right? And yet, that is not what the Israelites do at all, is it? They do not sit back passively waiting for God to act. They trust God, yes. They believe God, yes. But they also take action, they get practical, and rubber meets the road. One of the most important things that the church must always be reminded of is that God uses means. God uses means. He uses tools, if you like. He uses the actions and activity of mankind to accomplish his will. God does have the ability to use supernatural actions to accomplish his will, absolutely. But ordinarily, God uses means. Farmers need water for their crops. The Christian farmer prays. And God provides rain. The natural cycle or meteorological phenomena, cold fronts and warm fronts and air moisture, etc. Ordinary rain is the means by which God provides. We pray for God to convert the lost, yes, but then we also evangelize. God could come to us in a majestic theophany like he did to Saul on the road to Damascus and convert us. He could do that, but ordinarily God uses means, friendships conversations, Bible studies, attending church services, the invitation of a friend, all of these things were used by God to draw many of you, certainly to draw me, to saving faith in himself. Let go and let God, and he'll take care of it. There's nothing for us to do. That's a dreadfully unfortunate idea that crops up in the church over and over again. The Israelites could well have been tempted to think that way, but they didn't. No, they took up arms, they prayed, they trusted God for their protection, but they employed means to protect their people. They went to war. One man put it like this. A confidence in the mighty power of divine omnipotence is not the opposite of busyness in the use of the means God has given us for our own welfare day by day. Trust in the grace of God dependence on the spirit of god leads to results in produces men and women who go to war so to speak who do what they're called to do who will be practical and wise and use all the means at their disposal to advance the cause of god and the church of jesus christ close quote the point here is simply trust god and use means it's not an either or it's a both and trust god and use means we pray and we preach. We plead with God for our neighbor, and we plead with our neighbor. We believe that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the, wa- will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. But then we also give to the cause of Christ and mission. We invite to worship. And sometimes we have those uncomfortable but necessary conversations about the gospel. Trust God and take action. That's what Israel does, and we would do well to copy. Put another way, the call to faith is not a call to passivity. The call to faith is not a call to passivity. The Israelites, for all their awareness now of the sovereign provision of Almighty God, and they are aware of it, they still take up arms, they still go to war, they still take action. So that's the second thing. First, flee, then copy, but then thirdly, trust. 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 Look at the central section of our passage, verses 10 through 13. As Joshua marches to war, Moses takes Aaron and her up to the top of the hill overlooking the battlefield. Moses takes the staff of God in his hand and he holds it up. And when his hand fell, the battle goes unfavorably for the Israelites and the Amalekites seem to be winning. They are gaining ground on the battlefield. Now, when Moses' hand is strong and steady and he holds the staff aloft, the rod... The Israelites prevail. And so Moses, as he gets weary, Aaron and Hur put a rock under him so he can sit upon it, and they hold up his hands, they hold up his arms until the morning, until the Israelites have finally triumphed. Now many times in popular Christian understandings, and even in some commentaries, the assumption is that this is a passage about prayer. That that's what Moses is doing on top of the hill. He's praying, he's interceding for Israel, he's lifting his hands, and that's why they are prevailing. Well, not not to be a party pooper, but I'm I'm not quite sure that's right. We have to pay close attention to the text. You'll notice there's no mention at all of prayer in the passage, and actually the real focus here is not on Moses or even his assistants, Aaron and her, but it's actually on the staff of God. It's in Moses' hand. And when the staff falls, the Israelites fail. When they hold up the staff, the Israelites prevail. That's the key. Do you see that this is one great big object lesson? The staff is not a talisman. The staff is not a lucky charm, and neither is Moses. Rather, it's a symbolic reminder. It's an object lesson, and it's driving home this truth. God, his presence symbolized as it was in that staff, God is the source of his people's victory. Not the people's skills, not their cleverness, not their planning or preparedness, But if there is a victory this day, it comes from the Lord's hand. We must use means. The Israelites needed to strap on armor. They needed to march into battle get ready. Yes, we must do our duty. We must be diligent in the daily tasks that God brings our way. Yet we must never forget that the battle belongs to the Lord. Verse 11 indicates that Moses' hand, it rose and fell more than a few times before Aaron and Hur took action. So, the tide of the battle was actually turning multiple times for and against Israel's favor that day. You can imagine what kind of, what kind of emotions and thoughts they're having there of what, what's happening here, this back and forth, back and forth. What, what is this? And remember that the staff, this rod, is the emblem of power of, of God and it's the, presence, the symbol of the presence of God to bring judgment on Israel's enemies and deliverance for Israel themselves. There's nothing inherently magical in the stick. It's just a stick. I'm sure it was a very nice stick, one of the finest walking staffs you could find, but it's just a stick nonetheless. If you're a father of or a mother of boys, you know that there's a great deal to be said about good sticks and keeping good sticks around whenever you might need them. I'm sure it was a lovely stick, but it was just a stick. When Moses used it, the Nile was turned to blood to part the sea. When he threw it in the water, the, water turned bitter, the bitter water turned sweet. He used it to bring forth gushing water from the rock. All of those instances, and now here, by it, the Amalekites are defeated. Again, there's nothing inherently magical about the stick, but as a symbol, as an object lesson that it was, to remind Israel of God's presence and power among them. It is to them a symbol... That God himself is the warrior and he shall win the victory. God shall win the victory for them. We, God's people, use means, yes, but it is God who works by those means and he is the one who gives them their efficacy. As much as we love the sacraments, bread and wine, a little bit of water in the baptismal font, there's nothing magic in the water. There's nothing mystical in the bread or in the cup itself. It is only God's presence and power which attends them that gives them any efficacy. Nothing in and of ourselves and nothing in the elements themselves. And as an aside, verses 13 to 16, you see how Joshua's armies overwhelm and defeat the Amalekites. And God swears to utterly blot out their name, their memory from heaven. Ironically, there's very little scholarship or archaeological evidence that the Amalekites ever existed. There's some, but not a whole lot. Now skeptics will use this to discredit the veracity of the scripture saying that the Bible invented the existence of this tribe. They never existed. Yeah, maybe. But rather, perhaps, it is that the Lord kept his word, and the memory of, this, of these people, the enemy of his people, has been utterly blotted out. Perpetual enmity is declared there in verse 16 between Yahweh and Amalek, and the Lord wins. There's nothing left of them, barely even evidence that they existed. Now, what does verse 16 mean? A hand upon the throne of the Lord. Well, the Hebrew there is a little ambiguous. It seems like it could mean because hands were lifted up against the throne of the Lord, meaning the Amalekites arrogantly were warring against God and his people, lifting up hands as if in war, or it could mean a hand upon the throne of the Lord, invoking like language of an oath, like when you place your hand upon the Bible in court, you're placing your hand upon God's throne and you're swearing an oath. A promise that's going to be kept sure. Either way, either way, depending on how we might want to take the Hebrew, it means the Lord has sworn this. Either way, it's clear. The Lord keeps his promise of fury against the Amalekites. It's a sobering and it's a pointed reminder, isn't it, in this object lesson? That God will be for all people. He will either be a destroyer or he will be a savior. He will either be a judge or a refuge. All of us will stand ultimately either in the position of Amalek or Israel. Let's trust the Savior. But friends, the Amalekites did not die that day because of the fighting and the weapons of Hebrew soldiers. They did die that day, rather. But not one Amalekite would die unless God himself gave Israel the victory. That's the lesson of the rod, the staff of God here, right? When it's not in view, the battle goes badly. every eye could see it and know that God was with them, triumph was guaranteed. God is driving home a point in a very dramatic way in order to get this through the heads of his people. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that brings us to verse 15, the sort of theme verse for this passage. The battle is concluded. Moses builds an altar to commemorate this moment when God acted mightily for his people and he calls it, the Lord is my banner. What's that mean? Well, the Hebrew word behind banner essentially means sign, emblem, standard, flag. The staff that Moses held up on the hillside is like a battle flag, a standard for the troops down on the plain fighting on the battlefield in the same way that a flag representing the king and his realm was carried onto the battlefield in these great battles of the medieval era, the soldiers are not, strictly speaking, fighting for the flag or the banner. It's just a colored piece of cloth. But rather, what they're fighting for is everything that that banner represents, their home, their land, their culture, the values of their people, the safety and prosperity of their families, and so forth. What that flag stood for was what they loved and whose honor they were defending, for king and country, and so forth. Well, likewise, the staff of God was merely the signpost, the reminder of the one upon whom they could entirely depend, whom they could entirely rely as they marched to war, their God and king around whom they could rally, the one whom they could trust, and trust perfectly. Here is the matter of trust. Trust. We must use our due diligence, as we've been saying. We must use means. If we wish to feed our families, we must get up and get dressed in the morning, put gas in the car, and drive to work. Money will not just happen. But the reason that you or I have a job at all is because the Lord provided it for us. We use means, we work hard at holiness. But let's never rest our confidence in our diligence or in our own efforts but always in the power and presence of the God who is with us. Remember how the old hymn puts it? Onward, Christian soldiers marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle, see his banners go. Friends, we must take courage from the fact that the presence of Christ goes with his people. Rest your hope. In your promise-keeping, sure and steadfast God and Savior, trust His power, His ability, His provision, and then you fulfill your duty with confidence as you go in that trust. So, flee, copy, trust, and finally and briefly, look. Look. This passage points to and makes us look to and teaches us something about the perfect Savior. Moses lifts high the staff of God, but he can't do it for long. Moses is aging his strength is flagging. You can imagine his hands beginning to shake as he tries to hold this thing up for 10, 15, 20 minutes or more. And eventually his arms fail. Israelites start to die on the field, and the Amalekites look like they're gonna win. He needs some help. So Aaron and Hur come and prop up his arms. Moses is the deliverer of Israel, yes, but he's a frail, weak, and aging man. He's given to the conditions of his own mortality. And the point really is simple. We badly need a better Savior than Moses. One commentator notes it like this. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10, it is the root of Jesse, one of the titles for the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the root of Jesse. He's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel goes on to say, or excuse me, Isaiah goes on to say, he will extend his hand and gather his people from all the nations. And none of the enemies of his people will stand. They will all be overthrown. By him, by means of his cross, sin, and death. And Satan have been defeated. By him, the people of God are perfectly delivered and his hand never falls. His work on our behalf never fails. There is no weakness in him. His promises never fail. His strategy is secure. His defense of your soul is always, always perfect. What a perfect Savior we have in Jesus. Close quote. Brothers and sisters, as we labor here in this world and we labor in this life and we fight here in our battle with sin, we must ever look to Christ, our great and true standard. The Lord is our banner. In his name and in his power and in his help and strength we go. Moses was an imperfect Savior, an imperfect deliverer, a frail, mortal man. And yet his feeble efforts served to bolster and encourage the Hebrews to press on and fight as he pointed them to the Lord's power and provision. How much more encouragement ought we to take as we press forward, looking unto Jesus. The encouragement that Israel knew, it was real. It was great. But it was as nothing compared to the blessed privilege that we enjoy, we who know the presence and power of the Lord Jesus Christ the greater, the one greater than Moses, the all-sufficient, never-failing Savior, looking unto Jesus. He is most worthy of all our trust and adoration and fealty. So let us trust, let us obey, let us glorify and enjoy him now and forevermore. As we do, marching forth unto war, looking unto Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, the source of all confidence we have. Bless the Lord for his word to us today. Let's pray. Truly, O God, we ask, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, work these truths of Holy Scripture deep down into our souls, deep down into our bones. May we treasure them, apply them rightly, and give you all the glory as you do these things. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.